I just love this time of year, Palm Sunday, getting us ready for Easter. We're celebrating today Jesus arriving in our city as he did in the Gospels, and we're proclaiming him and expecting that in seven days we'll celebrate his resurrection. Don't miss that. It's going to be an awesome, awesome time. And hasn't it been great to also celebrate baptisms today? Does that encourage your heart? Yes. And hey, if you're here and you haven't been baptized, I would rather you skip out of this sermon and go to the foyer and talk to one of our pastors, and they will get you ready. We can baptize you at the end of our service today, and that would be a great step for you to take. I hope that you take it. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27 at verse 4, and Luke's Gospel chapter 10. As we get into our message this morning... We're in a series that we've been calling Heaven on Earth, and I really do believe that God is more and more uh, aligning things and bringing things our way so that there's this intersection between His realm and our realm, that heaven is being revealed on earth in increasing measure. And that's really what the ministry of Jesus is all about. And so in this series that we've been in, we've been talking to you about about our church and how we are committed to a certain vision and, and what we're about. And so in the very first message a couple of weeks ago, I shared that with you, that our vision is to release the kingdom of heaven on earth. And we are stepping into that by faith, and we're experiencing God doing amazing things. Every single week, there is something miraculous going on here. And it just makes us stunned to see what God is up to. And we just say, more, Lord, more. Would you reveal more of yourself not just to us, but to the many people in our city who still don't know you, and they need you so desperately. So that's our vision, releasing the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, we kicked off the series with that. Then last Sunday, Pastor Nick gave a really powerful message, and I was a little worried about him. I thought he was going to turn green or yellow, but I wasn't sure. And uh, if you missed the message, you can look it up online. It's called the Banana Talk, Okay. So, yeah, some of you probably didn't see it, and it's really worth taking in. God really spoke to us through Pastor Nick and uh, really revealed things to us uh, about the the moment that we're in right now as a church and as people. And uh, the banana joke, you'll have to listen to the sermon to figure that out. Okay, so I'm wrapping up our mini-series today with one message prior to Easter Sunday, and I want to talk with you today about one thing. I just want to cover one single thing here this morning that we want to pay attention to as a group of people. So we're in Psalm 27 at verse 4. I'm going to read it for us all. Then the words will be up on the screen. All right, here we go. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now I'm going to read that one more time because it's so good. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Friends, the way God has made us means that we can only really live for one single thing. There's only one real way to live. There's one pursuit, there's one passion, there's one purpose. There's one thing that we were created to fulfill. That's how we were put together by God. That's how he's designed us. 
And if we tap into that one thing, and if we arrange our lives around it, we will be able to step into a life of vitality and joy and fulfillment that is awesome. In fact, we're not created to live any other way. We are created for just one thing. And sadly, many people don't get there. They, they end up living for many things or multiple things. And when we do that, we end up with a fragmented, distracted life in which there is no joy and there's no peace. It's like we've been taking our life and cutting it up into little pieces and this person gets a little bit of me and that person gets a little bit of me and these people get some of me and pretty soon there's no more pieces to give because we're living for more than one purpose. But there's a better way to live. God has something for us that's really fulfilling, really special. And our lives can only be about one thing if we're going to lay hold of it. So how do we move into that? Well, in Psalm 27... Uh, we find here that David helps us get there by his own experience. He figured it out. And we can figure it out too. It is possible for us to live for only one thing. And to get there, we've got to understand a few things. The first one is this. I've just got one purpose. That's how we begin. I've got to have one single purpose to my life if I'm going to be about one thing. And it's got to be the most important purpose the ultimate purpose. So David puts it this way. He says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. Out of all the things that I could ask God for, out of all the things that I want from him, out of all the things that I'm requesting from him, there's just one thing that beats them all. And it's that I want to be a person who fulfills his purpose for my life. And that one thing, once we tap into it, once we get there, our lives really, really become specially blessed. It's the greatest way to live. And, you know, David wrote this psalm not on an average day. If you look at the whole psalm, you'll see that he wrote it while he was under great pressure. In fact, just take a look at your Bible. Look at verse 2. It tells us what he was facing there. Wicked people were advancing against him. Verse 3, an army is besieging him, war breaking out against him. Even over in verse number 5, he, he talks about the pressure that he's under. In the day of trouble, God will keep me safe in his dwelling. And down to verse 10, he says, even though my father and mother forsake me. Anybody ever been forsaken by mom and dad? Jesus, or Jesus, David can relate to you. He understood that feeling, that emotion. And then there's more that happens to him. He talks about oppressors in verse 11 and in verse 12, the desire of his foes, false witnesses rising up against him. All of that happening. David wrote Psalm 27 not on a holiday, not on a vacation, but in a moment of his life when he was under great pressure. And he said in the midst of that, there's still just one overarching purpose to my life. There's one thing that I'm committed to. And that will I seek after. That I will pursue. I wonder how many of us know that it's when life gets hard that life often gets the most clear. You know, when the pressures are really building up around your experience. When you're facing things that are really difficult and tough decisions and, and strain is upon you. And, and you're wondering, God, what's going on in my life? It's at that moment, perhaps that you can discover that there's one thing to live for. 
And that one thing is one purpose, and that purpose is God. He's got to be number one. And when we get into that frame of mind, and when we land in that place of focus, then the peace comes, but not before. So when David talks about pursuing one thing here, um, you know, I did a little word study on that and a few other words in, in this verse in Psalm 27. I wonder if you know what one means. It's really a tricky question. The word one actually means one. <laughs> and a special kind of one. It's not just any kind of one. It's a certain one. It's the one amidst all the other options. It's like those old game shows on television. Will it be door number one or door number two or door number three? You get to choose. And David is saying, I'm choosing the one thing, the most important thing in my life, the ultimate purpose in my life, and it will be God. It won't be my circumstances. It won't be giving in to fear. Uh, it won't be losing faith. I am going to live for one purpose only, and that purpose is to fulfill God's will in my life. So I just want us to grab a hold of that. It's saying to us here that we get to choose the most important thing in our lives. Isn't that true? You and I have that gift from God, the gift of our wills, the free will of humankind. We get to choose. Will God be number one in all things, or will I be number one? Or will someone else be number one, or some other thing be number one? It's a choice. And of course, you don't have to live with just one purpose in your life. You can have many purposes in your life. You can have multiple layers of purposes in your life. Some people say, for instance, well, I've got a little system worked out here. It's my belief system. Uh, my first number one thing in my life is God. He's on top. Okay? And then secondly, I've got my family. Right? They come next. There's God. And then there's family, and then there's work, and then let's tuck church in there quickly before we forget about it. There's church, and then there's others. And some people have really embraced this as kind of a, a model of living as Christians. And it's really sad because it doesn't work. It can't work, and I'll explain why in a moment. But the idea behind this bad belief system is that you just have to just put God at the top, and once you're done your stuff with God, then you can get back into your other areas of your life. You can start focusing on your family or your marriage or your job or your church or your friends or your responsibilities. God gets a piece of you. So does your spouse. So do all these people. And, and your job then is to kind of bounce back and forth between all these purposes and try to keep all the plates spinning. It never works. And yes, there are priorities within roles that we must fulfill. Of course we understand that. But this model can't work. It doesn't work because God, hear me out on this, God, God must be number one in all things. There's no seconds. So it's like this. I focus on God as my ultimate purpose, and in that relationship, I connect to my family. God in my family. I focus on God as my ultimate purpose, and I go to work, and I work for God at work. I'm not apart from God at work. I'm with God at work. Same with the church relationship. 
It's not like I just do church and then I step out of church. We are the church. Seven days a week. Then there's others. And so this really emerged, this model, this flawed way of living, it emerged in the 1980s, which was a decade that decimated discipleship. When we get to heaven, we have to have serious conversations with people about this. They wrecked discipleship in the 80s. They said discipleship is all about information. It's all about your head. It's all about knowledge up here. And if you're a Christian age 50 and up, you were tainted by this as I was. We were taught that if you had a certain head knowledge about God, you could have all these formulas and, and you know, ways of doing things, and it just worked because it's all based on logic and reason and human understanding. But it doesn't work. God must be first in my marriage. I don't have a marriage apart from God. God must be first in my work. I don't have a job apart from God. God must be first in my family I don't have a family apart from God. I have the family God has given me. And so instead of having a formula approach to God getting a piece of our life, there is a much, much better way of going about it. Let me put it to you this way. Kingdom living. Kingdom living means Jesus is ultimate in everything I do. In all my relationships, all my work, all my responsibilities, when I truly live out of this purpose, everything is in its right place and has its favor and its blessing. And if you live that way, you won't get it wrong in your marriage. You won't get it wrong at work. You won't get it wrong in your relationships. But he must be first. There's no, there's no way that he'll be second. That's the purpose that we live by. St. Augustine in 400 AD, the great leader of the church back then, put it this way, speaking of God. He said, he loves you too little who loves anything together with you which he loves not for your sake. So all those good things that we have, all those blessings that we have in our spouse, in our friends, in our church, in our job, they're great, but they can never take the place of God. They must never become number one. There can only be one one. And through that, we live. And so, you know, it's possible for any of us, I suppose, to make an idol out of things. You can make an idol out of Work and jobs and career, and yet God wants to bless us there. So we have to use discernment, right? You can make an idol out of your family. You can make an idol out of your children. Question, how do you know if your kids have become your idol? It's when your whole life is organized around your children, that they are the supreme thing. You're in the territory of idolatry. And guess what? Where we live, that's a big, big issue. Christians giving in, bowing down at the idol of children, almost worshiping their family, getting things way out of balance. I'm not saying we should neglect our family. There's tons of sermons we've preached on that. We just did a series on marriage, right? Of course we're committed to our spouse. Of course they're high priority. Of course they are. But God must be number one. He's got to be number one over our futures, over our family, over our relationships, over our careers. And if we don't have that, we start making idols. You can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of going to seminary and being trained as a pastor. That can be your thing. You know, you do that and you find out it's, it's, it's not like what you thought. You can make an idol out of shopping or getting deals and saving money and 
and living for the next moment of the sale or the purchase. You can get all caught up in those things and they will distract you from God. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. First the kingdom, right? We are kingdom people first. And we're in this real world. We've got choices to make. How much time do I put into this? How much time do I put into that? We make those decisions out of our relationship with God. And then we get it right, or mostly right. So if our lives can only be about one thing, and we need to have one purpose, we also need to know that we need to be about one pursuit. David figured this out too. I think he really got it. And he tells us what the pursuit is. Verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He said, that's my great pursuit. David the king over Israel. <laughs> There's just one thing I'm, I'm aiming for here. I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And you know, here's a guy with many responsibilities. He's running a kingdom, for goodness sake. And yet he's saying, this is the number one pursuit for me. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. The word dwell is a beautiful word because it, it conveys the idea that we're going to settle down with God. It's a word used for marriage. You know, when a husband and wife dwell together. David, I think, is saying, I just want to dwell with God. I want to live with God 24-7. I don't want to have a day when I'm not with God in a close, intimate way. Dwelling with God was the big pursuit of his life. Now, some of you might be thinking, I, I thought this verse was saying that we're supposed to want to be in church seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Well, that would be kind of bad, right? Uh, we could arrange for that. I mean, we could just say, you know, we're going we're gonna to follow the teaching of this verse. We think it means that we're supposed to be in the house of the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Bring your new metal water bottle. Get your iPad. Get your healthy food. Well, we'll feed you. We got bread and wine here once a month. You can just live here. Can you imagine if we just lived here? It would be icky, right? We're not meant to just be to get together gathering. We're supposed to scatter out there and bring hope and good news to people. So if you're one of those people who's looking at this thinking, oh, I get it, heaven's going to be one long church service with sound issues, with kids that don't want to be there, you're wrong, and you might need deliverance, all right? So heaven's going to be awesome. There's no issues in, in the eternal dwelling place. There's nothing that goes wrong there. Everything's perfect. And we get the foretaste of that in this life when we are a people who dwell in the presence of God. And sometimes we encounter God here in this worship service. Sometimes we encounter him as we're jogging down the bike paths. Sometimes you meet God as you're, as you're working at your, at your place, at your business. Sometimes you meet God at the, at the mall or the, in the middle of the night. God wants us to discover him all the time. He wants us to dwell with him. When I was in Tibet on a missionary trip a while ago, they took us on a tour of the largest Buddhist monasteries in the world. We went right into them and, and prayed as we went in in Jesus' name that God would dispel darkness and that he would rescue people. And we went in, and I remember this one place, the, the very largest monastery. Uh, they said to us that there were some Buddhist monks who had been in little cells um, 
praying in front of a statue to Buddha for 30 years and he'd never left the cell. Never left. And they ain't leaving. Because they're all about pursuing the presence of Buddha. They're trying to find an experience with the transcendent God that they will never get to because they're unfortunately looking in the wrong place and in the wrong name. How desperate is the human heart that some people will go to great lengths to force their bodies, their minds, their souls, their spirits to do things that don't even bring you into the presence of God. How desperate the human heart is. David is saying, I've discovered the secret. And by the way, this is a guy who lived in the Old Covenant days, right? He's an Old Testament believer. So I'm thinking, how is it that someone from the Old Covenant is teaching us in the New Covenant about dwelling in the presence of God? That's profound. And I think it's a covenantal tragedy for any of us in this room who claim to know Jesus to have less of an experience of God's presence than David did because we live in a superior covenant. David could only get the Spirit to come upon him, the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit on us and in us. We can dwell with God 24-7 wherever we go. Wherever we go. He's with us, upon us, in us. The question is, do you want to pursue an awareness of his presence? His presence is there within you, but are you connecting to him? Will you pursue his presence until he reveals himself to you? Jesus said this in John 14, 21. He said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Oh, I love that verse. You know, when I was 20 years old, God spoke to me right out of that verse. I was a brand new Christian. And it's like the Lord said, I'm going to manifest to you who I am. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to give you a taste of my presence. And he did. I think that many people miss out on that. They think Christianity is a belief system. It's got certain theological underpinnings. And if you believe the right things, you're going to be fine. Well, that's only a portion of the truth of it. It's a relationship with a person, and his name is Jesus. Jeremiah 33.3, God's phone number. He says, call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Call to me. Just reach out to me. Mention my name. See if I won't come your way. God is a revealing God. He has things that he wants to show us about himself and and reveal to us about his love for us. But he waits to be wanted. It's an interesting thing about God. It's almost like he hides himself a little bit just to see if we will pursue him. You know, when our kids were a lot younger, way younger, we used to do this thing called Easter egg hunts at home. You guys going to do that in seven days? Uh, We're doing one here at the church uh, next Sunday afternoon, and some people say, well, what's that got to do with Easter? Absolutely nothing, okay? It's just called fun. It's like Christmas trees, hot apple cider, all that stuff. It's just culture, but it's fun. And uh, we used to put these egg hunts on for our kids, and, uh, you know, we would always hide those little eggs in places where they would find them, right? You're not going to be a cruel parent and, like, hide them in the attic and Under the bed, in the middle of the bed, sure, yeah, no. My wife and I, we would put the eggs, you know, some would be right on the floor in the living room where a two-year-old could go, egg. 
Some would be maybe, you know, near the television. Some would be on the sofa or under the cushion, right? And that way we would have to help them. So we put these eggs around and they would come. And if they got stuck, what do you do as parents? You help them discover it. You go, hey, look over here. And they look go, oh, an egg. And they're so happy, right? We delight in our children when they discover good things. I think God is like that. I think God is always like that. God wants us to discover him. And so he hides himself a little bit to see, are you going to use faith? Do you really want me? Am I going to be number one in your life or number two? Because if I'm going to be number two in your life, you're not going to catch me. You're not going to see me very often. You're going to miss me. And God does not hide himself from us, but he hides himself for us so we can discover him and enjoy him and celebrate him. But isn't it true, isn't it true that so many times we are distracted from the presence of God? Isn't that true? I find myself battling that all the time. It happened in biblical times too in a house one day when Jesus was there with some people It tells us he was at this certain home, the home of Mary and Martha. This is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And uh, he got into the house, and there's there's a crowd there. And these two sisters, Martha and Mary, they're they're in charge of the day, right? It's their their place. And, And it says here that Martha opened up her home to Jesus. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, Right? She's thinking, we got, we got to put some food on the table here. we got to make some nachos. we got to make some iced tea. And my sister Mary, she's sitting on her feet on the floor by Jesus. Like, come on. You know, like, there's, there's a crowd here. We've got people to take care of. But Mary's just sitting there on the floor. She's enjoying this. She's just gazing at the face of Jesus, no doubt. And this is irritating her sister. So finally, Martha says to Jesus... She came to him. She said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus is put on the spot here. And this is what he says. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. One thing. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary chose the right thing. She chose intimacy over busyness. She said, I'm going to sit at the feet of Jesus. I don't know what we're going to eat, and I don't even know if we have anything to eat. I don't care. Jesus is in my house. I'm going to give him all my attention. She made the right call. She chose the one thing that was the most important thing of that day. Now, here's the truth, friends. We are all Martha's or Mary's. You're either a Mary person, you'll sit at the feet of Jesus whenever you can, or you're going to be a Martha person, you're going to be running around, being distracted, pulled by a lot of different directions. You get to choose. So how satisfying do you think God is, by the way? Is he enjoyable? Do you like him? He's quite likable. In fact, he invites us to encounter him with our senses. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just taste him. Just dare yourself to taste God. Say, Lord, I want to experience you. I want to know you. I want to know this is not just a religion. I want a deep, intimate relationship with you. 
I want to be held by you. I want to hear your voice. I want to see you by faith. I want to experience you with my senses. And when he's the one great pursuit in our lives, we're going to find him. When he becomes number one, he's not hard to see. And if our lives can only be about one thing and there must be one purpose and one pursuit, we also have to say this, that we need to embrace one passion. And I would say this to you, friends, it's time. It's time in our church and in our city to rise up with passion like never before for the kingdom of God is advancing in our midst. It's time. It's a moment that we're going to seize. It's a banana moment, right? There's just that one sliver of time when you, when you jump in and you say, I don't want to miss this. And we have that moment happening upon us. There's got to be one passion that gets released in our lives. And so many of you are already living that out in incredible ways. It's awesome. David got it straight, and he said, here's the one great passion. He said, it is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And he chose that word because it's a word that conveys our eyes are looking to him And it's a word that describes what it's like when a prophet has a vision. This is a prophetic gazing he's talking about. It's like an open vision in front of you of who God is. You're like, wow, by faith I'm just gazing at the face of the Lord. And when you gaze by faith into his face, you worship. You love him and you are loved by him. God reveals himself in splendor and in majesty and in power. So we've got to tune into his face to seek his face all the time. Verse 8, it says, my heart says of you, seek his face. So David responds, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Don't make it so hard for me, Lord, to see you. I'm going after your face. You ever said that to God? By faith, we can draw near to the face of the Lord. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. At verse 18, it says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The gazing into the face of God is a transforming, life-changing experience. It changes you. You can't look at the face of God and remain the same. So there's just one purpose and there's one pursuit and there's one passion. As Paul the Apostle put it this way, one thing I do, one thing, only one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's just one thing. It's always God. There's not three things. There's one thing. There's not multi-purposes. There's just one purpose. And he's it. I'm going to lead us in a prayer moment here and ask us to respond. I want you guys to stand with me at this time. And let's just keep our hearts really soft and really open to whatever God is going to say to us, okay? Just take a moment now to talk with God about where you're at and what he's saying to you about him being the most important single thing in your life. All right. I want to lead you in a prayer response here.
Let's pray together. I'm just wondering if you need to embrace God as the one thing, as the only thing, as the most important thing in your life. I'm wondering if he needs to be your greatest pursuit. If you've been maybe wandering outside of his presence too long, it's time to get back in. I'm wondering if there's too many competing issues in your life, too many distractions from God. And you need a new model of living. It's called Jesus first in all things. Jesus in your marriage, Jesus in your kids, Jesus in your work, Jesus in your life. Will you pursue him? Take a moment and talk with God about that. Say, Father, I want one passion for you. I want that to be the most dominant passion of my life, my desire for you. So, Lord, would you increase my desire for you? Would you expand my love for you? Would you enlarge my faith in you? Would you strengthen my commitment to you? I want you to be my one thing above all things. Just invite him to do that right now. Some of you have come here and you want to start this journey. You've never really begun to follow Jesus yet in your life. And if your heart is saying to you that you're ready to do that, I want you to pray these words with me. Jesus, I want you to be the one thing. I want my life to be all centered in you. So come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me of them. I turn to you. I ask you to change my life. Make me new. Give me one purpose to live for. I receive you right now. Thank you. Friend, if you just prayed that, that's awesome. You've stepped into that brand new relationship with God. It's going to last forever. So incredible. The Lord will give you new desires in your heart. That's what he does. Give you new affection for him and for people in new ways. You can thank him for that. We're going to sing this great song here, and then I'm going to come up and bless you guys before we head out. Stay standing with us. Let's lift up our voices.